From the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors, I'm Robert Caceres, and this is The Reframe. My guest today is Dr. Heather Trepaul. Dr. Trepaul is a full professor and coordinator of the counseling program at the University of Texas at San Antonio. She's the current president of the American Counseling Association and a past president of the Association for Counselor Education and Supervision and the Association for Creativity and Counseling. Dr. Trepaul's research focuses on gender issues and sexual trauma, counselor preparation and supervision, and professional advocacy. And she spoke with me about the roles that humility and risk-taking have played in her career. Growing up, it was more like, no, you know, always be in a position to learn, be in a position to serve, be humble and grateful. And so I think that's sort of maybe family values that I was brought up with. I would always say, if you look at my CV, you'll see one thing. If I I could make a CV of other rejections, you would see a whole lot. (laughs) It's probably a lot bigger than my actual CV because I'm not afraid to, to try and make mistakes. That's just something that I maybe learned growing up as something, you know, put yourself out there. Even if nine times out of 10, it doesn't work, you're going to learn something. Welcome to The Reframe. Over the next hour, you'll hear Dr. Trepaul describe her passion for service and commitment to leadership, discuss the goals and initiatives she's working to achieve as ACA president, recount some of the lessons she's learned from past professional disappointments, and share about her hopes for the future of the counseling profession. Dr. Trepaul also highlights the importance of seeking out supportive and challenging mentors. We need a community to help us negotiate things. And I don't think we're ever done with that work. I mean, I've had, like I said, personal mentors, I've had professional mentors, people who have helped me make decisions and sometimes helped put me in a position where I was able to you know, achieve something or do something. I don't, very little is ever done on a person by themselves. You do need those people who walk that path before you because chances are you're not going to be as successful if you don't have that sort of wisdom and guidance and, and somebody to tell you when you're full of it or like when you're wrong, you know, you're just wrong. It's like, no, you're not seeing something here. Like you're too entrenched in your perspective. Sometimes you just need someone who can tell it like it is to you. Heather began our conversation by discussing how her first full-time counseling job led her to pursue a career in counselor education. Um, My background, I began my counseling background working as a counselor in a small rape crisis center. We were the only one in our county, and so we served everybody from age four to age 94. And so I kind of got my start working in a real um, broad-based but very sort of crisis type of counseling where I was exposed to a lot of clients and different things that happened to clients. But being the only counselor there, I was always interested in other um, people coming to intern and help me out. So I would always get a lot of people applying who were either marriage and family therapists or counselors or social workers. And I was always willing to take somebody on in order to enhance our ability to see clients. And what happened was I didn't have any training in supervision. And so I was kind of telling everybody, just do, here's what I would do, do, this is what I would do. And I went to a workshop on supervision and I didn't realize, wow, this is its own, its own sort of career. <laughs> there are theories to this and models to this, and you can really help people become better clinicians. And so that was one of the things that sort of propelled me to seek out more training in supervision and eventually to work on my doctorate in counselor education and supervision. I really developed a passion for helping other people become the best counselor they could be rather than just doing it how I did it. And so um, through that, I became a counselor educator and I've worked at the University of Texas at San Antonio for the past 15 years where I'm the professor and I'm the coordinator of the clinical mental health counseling program, 
we have a master's kicker up accredited master's in school counseling, a master of science in clinical mental health counseling, and a doctoral program in counselor ed and supervision. So um, through all that, we work to train counselors. I also run a um, program for the integrated training of counselors in behavioral health care. It's a grant which focuses on putting counselors into medically underserved primary care settings. So um, another passion of mine is also bilingual counselor education. So we have a bilingual counseling certificate. And many of the counselors in our integrated care program are bilingual counselors serving our Spanish-speaking community um, here where I live in San Antonio, Texas, which is a huge medically underserved community. So my interests as a clinician are um, supervision of bilingual counselors, um, gender, sexual abuse, sexual assault, and relational cultural theory, um, and advocacy for the profession. So those are kind of how I look at some of the different things that inform my work as a clinician and also as a counselor, educator, and supervisor. I want to back up to your first clinical experience. And I think about like how much that demands of a counselor just in terms of like their resiliency, their strength, their ability to be balanced and attend to their own needs. And on top of that, as a new clinician in such a demanding setting, you were looking to help others and to want to be of assistance, even if you didn't necessarily have the training and background to do so. Where did that desire come from or where did that strength or wherewithal come from in the midst of such a dramatic and, and trying situation? You know, I have to say that was one of my favorite clinical experiences ever. I think that getting to work with the clients, so we were on call one week of every three, and we would go out, let's say a client was working, I mean, had reported a sexual assault or a rape, and they would be in the hospital working with a sane nurse for an examination. We would be on call to go out and see if the client, you know, wanted our services or someone to be with them. And it was so empowering to work with the survivors, so empowering to work with the clients. I think that something about it sort of fueled my desire as a counselor to want to do more, to want to give back. Um, the advocacy that's also part of that work, working to dispel rape myths, working to um, go out. We did a lot of work on college campuses in the um, prison setting within the community. You know, you got to do a lot of advocacy work, take back the night march. You know, it was, there's something empowering about getting to work with and beside the clients and also do the advocacy work for the organization and around gender-based violence that really sort of propelled me to want to continue um, to work in that environment. But I agree, it's a difficult environment. Many times, I think the first six months I worked there, I would constantly, um, I had a problem, you know, checking on my doors many times at night. And I had to learn through supervision how to, you know, make good boundaries between the stories that you're hearing from your clients and the work you're doing. And then how do you come home and have your your life at home that's separate from the, how do you maintain your wellness? How do you, you know, be the best you so that you can serve your clients? So it's a huge transition working in a setting like that because it can be overwhelming, but it's also very empowering. So I would say one of my favorite clinical experiences of my life. I really think that and tremendously understaffed and undersourced and still to this day. So I think that that's something that also, you know, when there's a community in need, I think I also feel strongly about helping there as well. I think to my students or myself, like as helping professionals, like we're so empathetic and we're so caring and we're so committed to wanting to work to facilitate change in the lives of our clients and their families. But then like compassion fatigue can set in. And that's like such a, a common thing of I hear students say all the time, like separating the stories, like you said, that you hear with your clients and being able to delineate, okay, this is my professional self and this is my personal self. 
and how challenging that can be on an ongoing basis for any of us at any point in our career. Can you think back to that time and maybe some of the things that your supervisor said that was practical or particularly helpful that helped you to maybe draw that boundary a bit more clearly or to take care of yourself and um, you know, just attend to your personal needs in a way that wasn't so burdensome with carrying those stories with you? Um, one of the things that I did, which was important, is I sought out supervision from somebody else who worked with that population. So I drove an hour between Akron, Ohio and Cleveland, Ohio to work with the supervisor at the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center because some of what I was experiencing, I didn't feel like my original supervisor understood. And so I was feeling a general sort of feeling of unsafety and I you know, would ruminate on some client concerns, things that I knew from school were probably an overextension. And so I you know, sought consultation with colleagues. They said, you really need to get a supervisor who understands the setting that you're working in. And I'm so grateful that I did. So I would drive up there once a week, it's an hour away. But what she did for me was she really helped me start realizing, okay, well, what are you experiencing? And let's identify it. So like I talked about the extra locking of the doors, um, not wanting someone to come up behind me or driving down a certain street and seeing a certain hotel chain sign where I'd known that a client had had a certain experience. So kind of looking at what were my triggers or my things that were going on with myself. And we talk about now, this was not 20 years ago, not the day too much we talked about vicarious trauma or different things that could happen. But, you know, I was sort of experiencing that. But by identifying it, sort of charting the things that I was experiencing, and then she helped me to, um, I mean, realize, okay, these are normal, if we can say normal reactions to what you're hearing, I mean, all this information and you're caring so much and you're, you know, inundated with this. How do we help you make not just physical boundaries between work and home, but mental boundaries? So do you need to, you know, have like a routine in the car, for instance, that, you know, you play certain songs that help you switch from one vibe or one place to another. For me, it was kind of imagining like a almost like zipping up an imaginary suit of like, here's my work suit and here's my home suit. I'm going to step out of that and I'm going to step into this and I'm going to let that go. So we worked on a lot of imagery, a lot of music and a lot of visual imagery, which really helped for me. I'm not the best at journaling. She tried that. I'll say that didn't work. So to know with your clients, sometimes things don't work with your supervisees. I'm not a journaler. We found that out. So for me, it had to be more visual. Like I had to visualize myself zipping up this work suit and then taking it off when I came home. And also sort of that music helped me kind of switch off. Okay, I'm going to, you know, when I play these songs, it's going to help me transition from that to this and be able to sort of shield myself a little bit um, to help. And over time, it, it was the best thing I could have asked for from supervision. It really helped me be my best self at work. So I, I greatly appreciate it. It sounds like initially too, just it was comforting to hear someone else who had worked in that setting and had similar experiences just normalize your experience. That even though what you were going through and how you were thinking about things or what it felt like on a day-to-day basis may not have been you know, balanced or sustainable, that it was still a normal reaction in that setting. Right. Oh, absolutely. And she could talk about her own experience and also give me practical tips as far as like scheduling clients. And so when I knew that I had clients who perhaps um, their situation was more intense, so we were preparing for court or different things, she sort of helped me learn about block scheduling when I could to, you know, be able to have, when I had the control over it, to be able to have different people with where I had different, um, to be able to bring my best self to those sessions and those clients. And so lots of helpful tips as a new counselor. I'll say she was the right, absolute best supervisor. 
Yeah, just things as simple and as logistical as scheduling can make such a difference. I know just in my own teaching and my own training personally as a, a counselor, those were the things that often got overlooked. It's, you know, content and skills, and this is going to help you to be the best counselor in the room to give, you know, a high standard of care. But sometimes the logistical, practical things can be as important because it helps us to feel oh, you know, I'm well-prepared or I've had a block of time to kind of decompress and attend to my needs so I can be present in the next session. Right. And those aren't things maybe you perhaps learn in graduate school. I don't know why, but I, I nobody told me about, okay, when you have this intense thing going on with a client, you might need extra time or to schedule different clients, you know, that you're working with that maybe are a little easier, you know, sort of emotionally around your time. So the, that wasn't something I learned. And so I felt like, oh, gee, why didn't I think of that? But really having someone else point it out for me was super helpful. And it was such kind of clinical wisdom that somebody passed down. And now I, you know, I'm all very conscious of it when I, even in my own life was scheduling things. I'm like, yeah, that's a good strategy for self-care. Very good, very simple. But it was something that sort of I wouldn't know, wouldn't have known until somebody taught it to me. Are there other things from your own personal clinical experiences that because you were never taught those things, you try and find a way to integrate them into your teaching so that your students don't have the same experience of like, oh, I, I just didn't know any better? You know, I think one thing I, I have talked about before, um, the use of the word counselor. This is funny. This is going to sound like a funny thing, but sometimes I think I, when I was taught in counseling, you know, we were taught the word counselor, but I didn't realize that not everybody used that word or some jobs, let's say the job title might be a caseworker or a therapist one or, you know, any different kind of title. And clients aren't always called clients. Sometimes if you're in a hospital, they're called a patient or it might be a student or it might be a consumer. I mean, we have many different words. And I think one thing I wasn't taught was that you have to sort of know your own identity so you can exist in that interdisciplinary setting. And as work becomes increasingly interdisciplinary, I think that is so important. I guess that's not something I was explicitly taught, but that is something I pass on that, you know, you may carry whatever label it is out there of the setting you work in, but that's okay. You're still a counselor. And that's not your license, that's not your professional identity, but you know, you know what that is. And that's important to be able to know that and advocate for yourself from that position. So that's something I can think of that I wasn't taught, but that perhaps I had to learn sort of through going through it. We're not always called counselors and our clients aren't always called clients, but it's important that we know who we are so we can represent that in the profession. You also referenced that you're really passionate about working with uh, Hispanic clients and bilingual clients. How did you get into that in particular? Well, so working at UTSA, we have, um, we're a Hispanic serving call ourselves Hispanic thriving institution. And so we have um, a unique demographic also within our community. Um, San Antonio is the sixth to seventh, depending on the U.S. largest city in the United States. But we're also a medically underserved community. We have a lot of, there's a dearth of bilingual counselors. It, it's interesting because we have a large, particularly Spanish-speaking population, and there are many more languages than just Spanish-speaking, obviously, but in our community, that's the need. And so what happened was when I started working, I had a number of students, particularly practicum and internship, who would be out on site and they would be counseling in Spanish with Spanish-speaking clients because that was their preferred or only language, or sometimes they would switch between English and Spanish or some version. And the supervision on site was... <laughs> strictly in English. So the student would be translate, you know, they would be translate, would do the tape. Let's say they had to do a tape for an assignment. They would do the tape in Spanish because that was the language of the session, but then they would have to translate it for 
the supervisor and then for their assignments and then for the class. And so there was this sort of extra tax, I think, on those students. You know, they would oftentimes also be, you know, changing resources into Spanish or forms. I mean, lots of things that other counselors weren't having to do. And so it really sort of struck up this need for, wow, we need to do something about this, that in our community in particular, you know, that we have this huge need for bilingual counselors, but we're not doing anything about training or supervision. And we don't even know what are the best practices where we were as a program. So eventually we developed a bilingual counseling certificate. It's a 12 hour graduate level certificate where our students um, take the same exam as bilingual teach certified teachers. It's by in the same department. So they can see, well, where are your skills at speaking, at listening, at reading, at writing, kind of in those four quadrants. And then, you know, we try to make sure that they're at an intermediate level if not, then they will take um, special coursework. We also have classes in um, in conjunction with our bilingual bicultural studies program, where we have some um, transnational counseling course. We have a counseling in Spanish course, and then we have a practicum that goes along with it, where though they're seeing the clients, also all the tapes, all the work, and all the supervision, the classes in Spanish. So it really gives them that foundation when they come out of the program with that certificate that yes, you have had this training and this experience. So it's exciting. I mean, it's it complete, the interest was struck up as a response to the students in, in our program and our clients in our community and kind of seeing that need and it's ever evolving and ever growing. I think it's something I'm really proud of UTSA for investing in and wanting to continue to grow our program. We also developed a study abroad to Oaxaca to Mexico, kind of again, along the same idea of seeing some of the clients in our community and responding to some of the things we were seeing. So it's it became an interest and then studying, you know, the experiences of the supervisors and also the supervisees became sort of a research interest of mine. Like, well, what are we doing? What are some strategies that people might use? Because sometimes, you know, we can't always have strictly a Spanish speaking practicum. So what do you do when you have mixed mono and bilingual counselors? And are there things we can do to promote that with you know, everybody in the room and to sort of normalize things. And how can we um, how can we talk about these issues within counselor training? So that's been pretty cool as well. Now, what was your prior experience with working with Spanish speaking clients? Were you fluent in Spanish or is that a skill and a competency that you had to, you know, <laughs> go back to the drawing board and work on yourself? No, I had to go back to the drawing board and say habla espanol un poquito. So I think that for me, it was definitely, um, my daughter was in a dual language program. And so they gave us free Spanish classes along with her program for the parents. So part of my other motivation was learning to learn how to speak to help my daughter with her homework. And so I would by far not classify myself as bilingual or fluent, but I have been engaged in the learning of Spanish for about a decade now. So <laughs> it's been something that I've continuously tried to work on all the time. My writing is terrible, but as always, you know, your receptive is better than your expressive. So I, I feel like I've made great strides in that, but it's been, it's a constant journey, a constant journey of self-improvement. And I, I enjoy it a lot. I think that I, it's, it's, it's a, um, it's such a, the need for bilingual counselors, I, is tremendous, not only in San Antonio, but across the profession. So I think it's interesting too, we've had other students, you know, we also, San Antonio, they call military city UTSA, uh, USA. And so we have other students, like let's say who speak Farsi. Well, if you speak Farsi, I mean, you can speak to a number of different um, people from different places. And so we have people at 
international language school or who come with the military or who come, you know, as refugees, you know, if we have a center for refugee services, you know, a lot of times the ability to speak in a different language can really, or Arabic is another one I'm thinking besides Farsi. We've had students who have been able to work with a number of different clients in different settings. And so it's been very interesting. You know, I've had clients, a student who spoke Arabic and we would call her mother to say, oh, what's the word for that? You know, we don't know how to say it. And I, I don't know Arabic, but how can I help her negotiate, you know, not only culture, but that intersection between culture and language as she's working with clients. So I think it's it's just such a, um, it's interesting to help when you see clients respond to the counselor who speaks in their language and see them negotiating that line between culture and language. It's pretty amazing. It really is something that um, I think is powerful. So clients tend to respond, well, even if you're a non-native speaker who may be from a different culture, that effort and that initiative is something that they appreciate? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, um, and for even for many of our students who, let's say they're not fluent, particularly in Spanish, I think trying, it goes a long way with clients. It's it's like a, a a handshake, you know, kind of like an invitation. Okay, you know, let's let's negotiate here. And you know, people what they call code switch go between languages sometimes too. Even when talking about different experiences, I think that's powerful. And you see clients sort of. It's another form of connecting that I think can be very powerful for clients. Yeah, how I frame that for students sometimes is, you know, especially because I do a lot of uh, work with school counseling students, that to work with a younger person who might see you as an authority figure or as someone who's like an expert and to have the humility to, you know, acknowledge that your language capacity is limited is a way of kind of, you know, showing vulnerability that it seems like clients really kind of respond to, not just at, at younger ages, but across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Or even if people laugh at the words you use or how you say something, it's a good connector with clients because, but you're also learning too. Like, I love when someone corrects me on something because I learned something, but if they laugh, they're like, okay, you know, you don't say it that way. This is how you would say it. And so I think that's important. That strikes me as taking kind of a lot of humility, A, to just go from like an area of expertise and comfortability to just into the deep end of something that's totally and, and literally foreign uh, and to embrace that and to know that that's going to come with mistakes and shortcomings and something that's less than perfect and to be able to laugh about it and embrace that. Where does that humility come from? Or also, I guess I'd ask, how has that served you well? Oh, I'm sort of a goofball as a person. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm someone who maybe takes myself very seriously. I think from my family, because they wouldn't allow me to. <laughs> so I think that um, my family has always been one who is like humility, sort of a virtue maybe in our family. We don't have people that are very, you know, oh, because I have this job or these kids or this car or whatever that I'm, I, it's just not something that maybe was rewarded growing up. It was more like, no, you know, always be in a position to learn, be in a position to serve, be humble and grateful. And so I think that's sort of maybe family values that I was brought up with. And so I've always, you know, I I would always say, if you look at my CV, you'll see one thing. If, you, I, if I could make a CV of all the rejections, you would see a whole lot. It's probably a lot bigger than my actual CV because I'm not afraid to to try and make mistakes. That's just something that I um, maybe learned growing up as something, you know, put yourself out there. Even if nine times out of ten it doesn't work, you're going to learn something. So. Can you think of a particularly momentous or instructive failure that you've had throughout your career that you're like, you know, that was painful, but I really, really learned something from that? <laughs> I can think of about 10. Um, <laughs> well, yes. So I will. Um, yeah. So I 
I was a um, an English major, and so in my undergraduate, and I was a very let's say flowery writer. So when I first got in my doctorate program, I turned in my first paper. I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> I turned in my first paper for a class and I got the, you know, come see me during office hours, red pen on my paper. And I went to see the professor and he said, you know, you need to go to the writing center. <laughs> he said, you're not going to make it in this program if you continue to write like that. He said, you know, and I thought, God, I have a degree in English. Like I can write, you know, it's a doctoral program. And he said, that's not academic writing. You're, you're not, you got to write a dissertation. You have to learn how to do this. And so it was a shock. I mean, it was a huge failure. I don't know that I can't remember last time I'd like flunked the paper. <laughs> it was big. And I, you know, you have all those self doubts about, can I do this and the program, but it was also like, no, you know what? This is a different kind of writing. I need to learn how to do this. And so I did go to the writing center. I did learn how to, you know, change my writing habits and learn how to do it. So while it might have been a failure at the beginning of that class, it ultimately worked out very well for me. But it was certainly humbling and certainly a failure in that sense. I can't help but think about like maybe junior faculty members who, you know, probably throughout their entire academic career, it's been nothing but, you know, just CV of successes and then begin to try and um, submit manuscripts or publication. And it might just be CV of failures. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Did you encounter that just as you began your career as a counselor educator that it's really tough and daunting to try and write for publication. Yes, I was just talking to um, at a conference to a junior faculty member about this the other day, that more often than not, you're probably likely to get rejected. (laughs) So it is something and we're, you know, I think most of us go through graduate school and we're kind of wanting to be achievers and we're high on the empathic scales and we have all these feelings about our work and it's personal, but oftentimes we're going to get rejected and that reviewer too is not going to be kind to us. <laughs> and so something you felt so strongly about, you know, this is important to you and you thought you wrote it well and you ran it by people and it comes back, you know, this is flawed or this doesn't make sense or you forgot this or you didn't see this. And it is a, can be a difficult experience. And especially when we feel so personally tied to our research or our writing. And so I think that that's something that you absolutely experience and you continue to experience to this day. Like I said, I've been doing this 15 years, still get rejected. And of course, I mean, it's, that's part of peer review, right? The rejection is part of it. I mean, not everything's going to get accepted. And so sometimes you have to find it a different home, but I do think that's important to acknowledge. I think we sometimes think we're going to have this successful experience, but when we don't, we have to sort of, I know you talked about reframing, but repackage that, re, re, tool that for, okay, what of this feedback do I want to take in? What do I want to change? And what do I want to put over here and say, nah, you know what? The reviewer didn't get it or it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to turn this around and find another home for it. So yeah, that's a continuous experience. I think that anybody in academia who has publishing as a requirement definitely is going to experience time and time again. I can just imagine someone listening and saying like, well, yeah, you've been at this a long time, 15 years, but to be a full professor in 15 years is still pretty rapid. And maybe some of the things you're suggesting is easier said than done. Like how time and time again, could you say like, you know what, like this is helpful feedback. I'm going to put this to the side because it wasn't so helpful and I'm going to push ahead. Did that ever get easier or was there a mental strength where you just were able to be persistent? Uh, I think I'm kind of persistent. (laughs) I think maybe I've always been that like person who will just keep trying even if they don't get it. So I think that um, 
yeah, I think it maybe it's a, a mental thing to try to, for myself anyways, that I will keep trying. So I'm like, no, I will do this. I will get this published somewhere. Um, but I think that's important. I think it's important to also know yourself as a writer, you know, and as a scholar, you know, what's important to you. To some people, it's really important. I haven't had this experience myself, but they will say, I want to publish something in that journal. And it's like to them, if they don't get the article in that journal, then that's a complete failure. I don't necessarily myself feel that way, but I know that's important to some people. So if that is important to you, then you got to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to be successful there? So I, I know certain people who like to them, like, I have to have it in this journal. So, okay, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily do that. But if that's what you want, you have to figure out how, what's going to help you get there. Otherwise, you're going to feel really defeated by it if that doesn't work out. What prompted you to want to become president of ACA? It seems like your academic career, even though it had its challenges, like was going really well. And to say like, you know, here's another thing that I really value and I want to go after. And, you know, this is something I want to pursue. Oh, that's kind. Thank you for saying that. I mean, it feels good. I, well, first of all, I will say, I don't think I ever sort of maybe saw myself as ACA president, but one thing I've learned about leadership is you learn so much more than maybe you give and you learn so much more about the profession and I had different experiences through different professional organizations, the state or regional level, and then at the national level where, you know, you think you know a lot about the profession from your little corner of the world. <laughs> from Texas, I know this much about the profession. But then if I go on a KCREP site visit as a team member, I learn, it stretches my learning. If I go to a new region of the country, or when I was ACES president, getting to go all over the country and see what the profession looked like, and it looked really different. And so it was such a learning experience to say, okay, well, the profession is different over here in Oregon than it is in Florida, than it is in New York, than it is in Ohio, than it is in Utah. And it really opens your eyes to, you know, the profession, the challenges facing the profession, and also the great things that counselors are doing. And so I think that that was some of what motivated me was even learning more about the profession. Okay, how can I continue to serve and serve in ways I might not even know about? because I'm learning as much about this profession as I am involved in the profession. So that kind of motivated me a little bit thinking, wow, this profession is bigger than I thought. And what opportunities could exist? You know, what could I do to serve my profession and my national association? And so I think that is part of what motivated me. So now you have this tremendous opportunity, but at the same time, like a very heavy responsibility. What are some of the initiatives that you've committed yourself to throughout your time as current ACA president that you'd really like to either just get off the ground or to accomplish during your time? Yeah, well, one thing I'll back up before I say that is, so a change in ACA has been, you know, we have adopted a strategic plan. And so we've looked at advocacy, relevance, and practice support as being kind of our strategic drivers. And then the board has picked priorities that we have really gone on, you know, what do we feel are the important things in the profession as a board? So it's not one person, it's us saying, what's the vision? Like, where are the needs in the profession? And those are the things that as an organization, we're really valuing. And so I'll talk about those in a minute. But when we look at those, they're kind of portability, if I can just summarize portability, parity, and sort of advocacy or representation. And those fit very well with things that I'm already passionate about. So I'll start by saying my main sort of goal is to support the work of our strategic plan and support our vision of our board and those things that ACA as an organization have committed to. Because I think derailing an organization from what just one person wants is not okay. I mean, I think we have committed to that through that vision of all those leaders and the board as you know, that's our vision. That's where we're going. So as president, though, you do have 
you know, a window to be able to have a platform for the issues that are important to you. And so I had a couple of things this year, a couple of different task force that I felt were important to me, you know, while I have this time. And one of them is um, looking at um, sexual assault and response advocacy and resources. And so I have a task force, again, much of this based on my background in rape crisis and my research in gender and um, sexual abuse, sexual assault studies, looking at what are the best places where counselors can get those resources. We know the statistics haven't changed over time. It's not like the stats have gotten better. And so again, helping this task force is looking at, you know, where inside and outside of ACA can we compile those resources? And so they've done a survey and some different things. And so I'm excited to see how they finish out that work. The second task force is looking at um, kind of a state of counseling research. And so, again, this is something where I have, you know, kind of heard from people within our profession, you know, we talk about advocacy and people ask us for data. Well, what are we good at? <laughs> what do counselors collect data on? Where do clinicians get this data from? You know, they always say if you read a journal article, like, you and your grandma read it, nobody else, and we cite each other. I was curious, you know, how are clinicians accessing the things we're putting out? And so that task force's job is to look at across the profession, you know, what is our research and who is consuming our research, and then to make recommendations to ACA for how we can best get that research that we do so well into the hands of policymakers and clinicians, you know, and help us advocate, but also help us work with clients. So I'm excited about their work as well. And then two more. And so the other two, um, one of them is a professional advocacy training task force. And so I'm really interested in advocating to advance the profession, which absolutely supports our mission with ACA, supports our strategic drivers. But I think we're not traditionally, I mean, some of I'll speak for myself, I'm not, and some um, always knowing how to do that. And so, you know, how many times when somebody, you tell someone you're a counselor, does it take you five sentences to follow up? What kind of counselor are you? And so how do we maybe make a video that helps us or teaches counselors how to talk about that elevator speech. I think little things like that is what that task force is focused on, you know, looking at practical tips for professional advocacy to help counselors and counselors in training, you know, make that part of our mission of our professional career. And those little things like that, using the word counselor, you know, explaining it to somebody in less than a paragraph, how do we help people do that? And so the final one is on new and early career professionals. And this is an issue that is near and dear to my heart as an educator and also a supervisor. Our new counselors, early career professionals, um, in many areas, are facing unique challenges. There is, you know, they have an undergraduate degree of roughly four years, and then we have an average of three to three and a half years of a master's degree. And then they have an average of three years post-masters if they're working on licensure. And so that's a long time. We're a well-prepared group of professionals. However, they have to eat, they need insurance, they have to pay back loans. <laughs> jobs aren't as easy to come by, particularly in that pre-independently licensed period. You know, they pay for supervision. Um, the job opportunities in some places aren't as wide for that group. And so that task force is looking at sort of what is the state of that group in the profession and making recommendations for how we as ACA can best help and support them. And I'm really excited about that because I think that as an educator, like I said, and as a supervisor, that's really close to my heart, that that group 
I feel is kind of overlooked in some of our other discussions. We talk a lot about practicing counselors. We talk a lot about students. We've got, you know, resources going there. We have, you know, um, efforts going there. But that group in the middle is kind of like, wait a second, <laughs> what happened to us? <laughs> what happened to them? And I think we can all remember if you have your license, I, I bet you can remember that time as a time, you know, definitely you're not in grad school anymore. I mean, you're a professional, but you're kind of in this in-between place of getting yourself established and you face unique challenges. And so I think that's a group that I personally feel that we need to spend more time and advocacy and efforts on. So those are kind of the four things that I've been sort of focused this year while I have this time with ACA on working with, in addition to supporting our strategic plan and working with our amazing staff and getting to meet our members across the country and learning more and more about what they do and how we can help support them. As we record this conversation, you're over halfway through your term as ACA president. I'm sure maybe the time has flown by. You've done a lot of traveling. You've talked to a lot of people. You've gone to a lot of regions. At this point in your term, what are some of those takeaways or some of those just, oh, you know, like, I wasn't aware of that in my previous corner of the world. Yeah, I, and it wasn't that I wasn't aware of this, but portability is such a personal issue. <laughs> when people are engaged in telehealth, where they you know live in one place and are working with clients who live in another place, or when they want to move, or if they're military connected, I have heard so many stories from ACA members and other counselors who are not ACA members across the country about this concern. And it's so personal. So I, you know, we talk about it in this sort of, oh, portability, we have to focus on this. But hearing those stories really drives it home to me, how important it is when you hear somebody say, you know, I moved, I couldn't get, I was independently licensed and I couldn't get licensed for three more years. And they want me maybe take another class. <laughs> and I had already been working independently or, you know, my spouse was moving here and I needed to, you know, find a job and I wasn't able to do that. I mean, those are really personal stories that I've gotten a chance to, to hear so much of. And I, continues to drive home how very important that work is that ACA continues to work on portability for licensed counselors. I, I just think it's a, a paramount issue. The other issue I think that I've heard a lot from people about is how passionate they are about what they do. And I know we think that that's, you know, you think, oh yeah, counselors are passionate, but no, counselors are a really passionate profession. <laughs> and so you meet a lot of people who have like their niche or their business. And so you know, people that have like equine therapy, you know, ranches to work with clients with eating disorders and they've built these amazing programs. You're like, wow, that's it's so cool to hear the stories of the different things that counselors have done and are doing, you know, in rural here or in downtown here, you know, just so many different people have taken this profession and, you know, really put their own stamp on it and said, no, these are the clients I want to serve, or this is how I want to run my business, or I work for this agency and we serve, you know, GLBTQ plus youth. And, you know, I, I'm passionate about how we create, you know, opportunities there. And I think it's been really exciting to see that part of the profession that you know about, but I mean, again, you don't see it's everywhere. We have a really cool profession and that's been inspiring to get to see that counselors are out there doing amazing work. And and because they're counselors, you know, he's here, but that's one thing too. People don't toot their own horn. And so that's something I was realizing too, that we have a lot of really humble counselors and that they're doing some great stuff, but they're not necessarily, you know, putting themselves out for an award or they're not going to do that because they're busy working. And so I think that's true. Like people are very humble about what they do. And it's pretty amazing. I bet there are a lot of people listening right now who are very passionate, fired up and wanting to get involved, but not necessarily knowing where to start. Maybe because they're really busy or maybe because they're new in their career and they just haven't taken that first step yet. 
what are some immediate needs that might be like low threshold in terms of commitment or time burden, but high yield in terms of what it could mean for ACA or for the profession that people can begin to get involved in that perhaps has been overlooked or underserved? ACA always has committee or volunteer applications. One thing I think you can always do is volunteer to be an advocate. So within ACA or even our state branches and other organizations, so not just ACA, but when there's a call from um, any of our professional organizations to get involved, I think there's an opportunity. And so sometimes it'll be in a state where let's say there's a be a threat to licensure practice or scope of practice, or it's something larger, let's say, to deal with um, something at the federal level, legislation on school counselor ratios or uh, Medicare legislation that we've you know recently gone through or different things. When you see that call, take advantage. Contact whether it's the licensure board, your legislators, whoever you know the information to. I think that's a small way that is actually does a lot for the profession. You may not realize it, but it could take three minutes of your day to write an email, to make a phone call, you know, to do a public comment before your licensure board might take a little longer. But those are small ways that's like one step towards getting involved, but they're actually very meaningful because then all those voices together equals a much larger voice or impact. And something that surprises me that people don't, unless it's like a crisis or something, we don't see the numbers that maybe I feel like we should. And it's like, what stops people? What stops you from making that call? Or when you get that, you know, we have what's called voter voice from ACA, where we'll send out, you know, you can type in who your representatives are and we'll say, you know, here's everything you need to know. Here's their email address to send them an email, give them a call. You know, we're not saying go to the hill and visit them, but here's one way to let them know you're their constituent and this issue is important to you. And so sometimes when you don't see the numbers, you think you should, you're like, oh man, I know we have that many members in that state, but why aren't the numbers there? I think that's one sort of low commitment way. (laughs) When you see that, it's like, no, we really mean it. We really want you to do it. Like, that's like, yes, you are the most powerful voice if you are the constituent, if you are the licensee, you know, the local level counselor who is impacted is who's the voice belongs to. And I think that's so important. So that's one I kind of think low level way in a more, um, which definitely impacts the profession. It's a high yield too. Like if you are advocating and then there's a change that happens, like, yeah, you had a part in that and a bigger part because you were the constituency. So again, you were there. If you're a licensed counselor in that state, there's an issue going on your licensure board and you go make a public comment, you know, that's who you're speaking to them. You're, you're, that's who they want to talk to and hear from. So that's one way I think that I would encourage everybody to get involved, to take as much or as little time as they want on. I mean, the other pieces, you know, areas such as joining a committee. I mean, there are lots of organizations, including ACA, where, you know, we feel, some of us feel called to like ethics. Like, let's say you, that's your passion. Well, then you might be interested in working on a licensure board or joining the ACA ethics committee at some point. Other people feel really called to human rights. And so many organizations, including ACA, have a human rights committee that look at, you know, what are those issues, global warming, different things that are happening, you know, gun violence, what do we feel strongly about? So finding something within whatever organization it is, I think that speaks to you. And hey, it might be the awards committee, it might be the bylaws committee, I don't know. But again, we need all those things too. But Find something that speaks to you, and I think you will get satisfaction from it. So if it's something you care a lot about, that's where I would choose to try to volunteer my time or my effort. Earlier you mentioned just the passion and and just the heart you have for those new professionals who aren't yet licensed. I guess I would ask, what would be your word of encouragement, your advice then for those who've gone through the rigors and the demands of earning a degree yet 
haven't earned that full license. And maybe you're feeling like, oh, this has been so expensive and so time consuming, but I just need to push through. What would you say to those people? I would say, don't give up. <laughs> Please don't give up. We need you. I What breaks my heart is hearing stories. There was um, a friend of mine told me the other day they had a student who went back to being a nurse because they were a nurse at the bachelor's level, got their counseling degree, and then were really struggling to get their hours for licensure. They were volunteering. You know, they just couldn't make ends meet. And so they're like, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to do it or I'm not going to do it right now. And those kind of stories break my heart. Um, I understand the practical choice that this person made, but I also, my word of encouragement, don't give up because the profession needs you. And we need new voices and we need that new generation of counselors who, you know, are invested in issues. You know, some issues remain the same, but some things are changing in the profession. And I think it's important that we have that seat at the table and continue to have it, but we need that next generation. So I would say don't give up. <laughs> that would be my my advice to people and that this profession is definitely worth it, that I think it's very, very important. And give back. So one day you're going to want to be a supervisor. So if you're going through supervision now, take everything from it. And remember what kind of supervisor you want to be one day when you're in the other seat. What is your hope for the future of the profession? That's such a big question. My hope, I guess, would be that counseling is recognized at the same level by the public as the other mental health professions. And the word counselor, the word counseling are used in ways that we hear other mental health professions use their titles and what they do. So my hope would one day be that we don't have like teddy bear counselors at stores or camp counselors, but that we have sort of an ownership over the word and that we don't need that elevator speech. And then it's a much more recognized, not that it's not, but that it's equal or has parity to those other mental health professions that may have been around longer, but, you know, our seat at the table is there, that we have it, that we're reimbursed at the same rates for our services as other mental health professionals. And then we have the same opportunity to access jobs as other mental health professionals do. And for counselors in all settings, and again, we're not just talking about, you know, licensed mental health counselors. I mean, that School counselors have the same opportunities to practice within their training, the college counselors, the rehabilitation counselors. I mean, I think that we have to look at our profession as so big that we all have the same opportunities as other mental health professionals do, I think would be my sort of hope for the profession. Those are definitely ambitious goals and going back to the strategic drivers as well. You know, things like parity and portability are incredibly ambitious and, you know, history has been evidence too, like a slow process. Could you speak to maybe some of the ways in which the profession has gained ground or had recent successes that you know people may not be as aware of but might find incredibly encouraging? Yeah. So I will say this. At a number of levels, I think um, one of them is, you know, ACA has funded this idea of, you know, enacting a portability compact. And we're in the early stages of it, but they're in this sort of drafting of what the compact would be. The compact's like um, kind of like a driver's license. So you know, you're licensed to drive, let's say you're in North Carolina, but you can rent a car and go drive in other states. You know, you just have to adhere to the laws of those states, but you have your license one place, but it kind of goes everywhere. A compact is like that. And so I think what ACA has done that I'm so incredibly proud of is to, you know, look at investing in the development of this compact. And we're just in the initial stages of it. But people may not know that. I would encourage them to go to www.counseling.org and learn more about the compact process and see what that looks like. And then when that draft legislation comes out, you know, give their opinion. I mean, it's a part of investment on part of the entire country to see, you know, how do we get states eventually 
involved in the compact? How is that going to work? I have more questions than answers right now because we're at the early stages of it, but that's something very, very exciting. I also feel like increased counselor hiring within the Veterans Administration is also something that I would be so proud of. If people don't know that, Google it because <laughs> counselors have been eligible to be employed in the VA for a while now, but you know you can kind of look at the slow but steady process, but we've recently been seeing increasing gains in that area. Um, the other one would be Medicaid. And I think there has been a recent move. We've had tons of advocacy over many decades and bipartisan support and all this. You'd think, why not? Why isn't this happening? But I think that um, looking at looking at definitely um, counselors who work in opioid treatment um, programs and facilities being able to be reimbursed is a small step, but a step in the right direction. So I think those are some things that we've definitely had some some gains on that I think are important. I would say, you know, look at our website if you want to know about what some of those latest things are. I think that's important to hear about, you know, what's happening in the profession and how are those gains being made. As you look to the remaining months of your term as ACA president, what are those things that you really want to make that final push to initiate or to really accomplish in your remaining time? Well, a big thing that is coming up is our conference. (laughs) So it's in April this year. So that's one thing that we're going to have a heavy focus on. It's in San Diego this year. And so it's at more toward the end of April. And so part of what I think is the great thing about the conference is bringing counselors together, not only counselors here from the United States, but we have counselors from Korea. We have counselors from the Philippines, from Australia, you know, many of our international partners. So getting to also talk with them and share ideas about the profession, you know, having all of our volunteer leaders in the same place, having students in the same place, really focusing on making that the best event that it can be for the year. I'm, I'm thrilled about that piece of it. And then, um, For the rest of the year, like I said, looking at the finishing out of the work of those task forces, so looking at how do we take the work that's been done and turning it into recommendations, but also not just work that's been done, but how can we influence the organization and influence some things that we can put into place, you know, for new professionals, looking at our research, looking at advocacy training, and looking at, you know, sexual violence um, resources. So for me, that's really important to kind of finish that up over the course of the year and support my new president. So again, doing that part of mentoring, you know, help lifting her up and support the goals that she has for next year. And so we also had our next president newly elected. So now I've got somebody else. So that mentoring piece, you know, kind of giving back to the people who are, you know, next in line for that role, I think is another piece of how I want to spend the next couple months kind of helping set them up in very positive ways. And I find it encouraging to say that, you know, you're wanting to continue to give back as a mentor for those who are coming after you. Can you speak to maybe the role and impact that mentorship has played in your life? I know you spoke to supervision, but just other mentors you've had that have been impactful in your life. We continuously need mentorship at all aspects of our lives and careers. I even think as a mother, I have other mothers who are like my Shiro mentors. Who I look to them who have kids who are older than my kids, like, how do you do that? Or how did you help your kid get through that? You know, I think that that to me is, you're always looking to somebody else who either paves the way for you, or someone recently told me this idea of a sponsor too. Sometimes we have a mentor, sometimes we have a sponsor, somebody who sort of puts helps puts us in positions. But I think there are all kinds of in leadership ways that we need a community to help us negotiate things. And I don't think we're ever done with that work. I mean, I've had, like I said, personal mentors, I've had professional mentors, people who have helped 
help me make decisions and sometimes help put me in a position where I was able to, you know, achieve something or do something. I don't, very little is ever done on a person by themselves. I truly believe that professionally or personally, it takes a village and you do need those people who walk that path before you because chances are you're not going to be as successful if you don't have that sort of wisdom and guidance and and somebody to tell you when you're full of it or like when you're wrong you know you're just wrong it's like no you're not seeing something here like you're too entrenched in your perspective sometimes you just need someone who can tell it like it is to you and we all need those people in our lives i think personally and professionally i I can't say that mentorship is ever something that's old hat or outdone i i think we would be lost without it are there other topics of interest to you or passions you have that maybe we haven't touched on that you would want to share with our audience (laughs) No, I think I've touched on a lot. What I would say, and I didn't talk about, is relational cultural theory. And so that's something I don't have a lot of time to talk about it. I'm kind of a theory nerd. But um, I think that it's a theory that has gained increased momentum. So as we look at like the multicultural social justice counseling competencies and this move towards action as a part of how we're looking at, you know, multicultural um education and how we're looking at this idea of competence, competence with clients, I think the action part with social justice is important. And RCT is a theory where that's a component of it. And so I would want people to look at the theories that we're using and how they look at ideas of power, privilege, marginalization, but also action. And that's something I would say, you know, look at it, give the theory a chance. But (laughs) we didn't get to talk about it. But as a theory nerd, it is one of my favorite theories. And I would definitely say it's something worth looking at. And uh, as we wrap up, I just want to end the episode as I end every episode by asking the guests to think about a time in their life where maybe they were approaching a situation with a mindset or a perspective that wasn't quite helpful or healthy. And they had to step back and reframe that reality and how they thought about that differently had such a positive impact on their life. Yeah. So ever since you told me you were going to ask that, I was thinking about this question. And I have a dog. He's a rescue chihuahua. He comes from Texas, Chihuahua Rescue and Transport. His name is Ray Ray. He's four and a half pounds from Main Streets of Laredo, Texas. And Ray Ray was like the cutest dog. So we saw him at a PetSmart. So the company came to the PetSmart and they rescue chihuahuas from lots of situations. And they have them there in crates. And, oh, he's so cute. We want him. And so the woman brought him to my house and she said, well, we're going to give him a week's trial basis. He hasn't lasted in any family he's been in. And you look at him and you think, he's so cute. He's so little. My kids love him. Well, Ray Ray was terrified. And he growled every time someone came near his food. He lunged out and bit people. He went to the bathroom in the house. He was like the worst dog ever. (laughs) And my kids didn't like him. We're afraid of him. I was kind of afraid of him. I didn't feel like he bonded with us. And I had this moment where I was like, is this the right dog for my family? And this is someone who never had a dog before. Is this the right thing? You know, these kids want a dog. Is this the right thing to do? And I really had to sleep on it and think, well, what has this dog been through? Let me think about this. Think about her words. He's never lasted that long with the family. You know, what was his history? What might it be like? Like you're looking at him as you want this dog to come in and bring happiness to your family and acclimate and bond. But this isn't the dog that you were, that you chose. This dog has had a a difficult time attaching to people. He's had a difficult life on the street. He was abused. And so by reframing kind of how I looked at him, like, wait a second, how can we help him adjust to us rather than this is just going to be this great kumbaya? It really changed my perspective on him. And 
it took, I will say, six months to a year before he was comfortable. I will happily say he's been with us for almost six years now. And so, but again, it was reframing from like what I thought he was supposed to be to who he really was and kind of framing that as like, okay, accept him and make the situation different for him. You know, work with what we have rather than what you think it's going to be. And I was ready to give him back. You know, that week didn't go well. But again, six months, almost a year didn't go well. But finally saying, okay, you know, let's look at this differently. He's got this history and you have to accept that if you really want to, you know, bring him into your family. The Reframe is a production of the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors. If you enjoyed today's episode, Please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Join me next month on The Reframe.